Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333 2020 401 and join the debate. Good morning, I'm Rob Wallace sitting in for Ali on Scotland's talking. Two hours of music and conversation. And coming up on the show... Tell me what you think of the Brexit comings and goings this week. People were told it was all going to be so easy. God, isn't it difficult? So said the Tory MP Anna Subri after a week where it seemed we had a deal on the Irish border, then we didn't, and then we did again. Sufficient progress has now been made on the strict terms of the divorce. A Brexit watcher will try and help us understand what's been going on and what could happen next. Also on the programme, there's hope for a quarter of a million Scots that they could beat type 2 diabetes. I'll be speaking to Isabel, who took part in a medical trial. It's almost like getting my life back again. I'm much more active, much more able. I feel 10 years younger. It feels great. But the thing is, she had to live on a liquid diet for four months. Now, could you do that? Paisley Buddies had their hearts broken when they were overlooked for the City of Culture crown. Just watched it during Kai. I'd convinced myself, I, I actually convinced myself we were going to win it. Well, Dundonians will know just how they feel. Why do we keep putting ourselves through this as a nation? And with two weeks to go until Christmas Eve, tell me, do you feel there's too much pressure to spend? We'll hear some suggestions for how you could save pounds and the planet. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. We're going to start off by asking, what do you make of the state of play on Brexit? Sufficient progress has now been made on the strict terms of the divorce. So said the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, announcing that finally talks will move on to the next stage, which will be discussing the transitional arrangements for straight after the UK leaves the EU. And then eventually they might get on to, to talking about trade. It has been a very intense two weeks. So what we think we know right now is that the UK has agreed to pay up to £40 billion to leave a club where we're currently paying subs of around £8 billion a year. I want to know this morning if you think that is good value for money. We still don't know exactly what our relationship with the EU will look like after Brexit because the talks, as I said, haven't moved on to trade yet. Now, the sticking point this week was what happens at the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And the Good Friday Agreement says there should not be a so-called hard border between North and South. And, of course, that's not a problem at the moment from a trading point of view while all of us are in the EU. But what about happens when one of them isn't? Well, the DUP weren't happy with Plan A. That was for Northern Ireland to follow roughly the same rules on trades and good as the EU. It's what was called regulatory alignment, where the rest of the UK didn't necessarily have to do the same. Uh, where the DUP weren't happy with that. So at breakfast time on Friday morning, Theresa May flew to Brussels to announce that she has found something that everyone can apparently agree on. Getting to this point has required give and take on both sides. The deal we've struck will guarantee the rights of more than 3 million EU citizens living in the UK and of a million UK citizens living in the EU. EU citizens living in the UK will have their rights enshrined in UK law and enforced by British courts. They will be able to go on living their lives as before. I was clear in Florence that we're a country that honours our obligations. After some tough conversations, we've now agreed a settlement that is fair to the British taxpayer. It means that in future we will be able to invest more in our priorities at home, such as housing, schools and the NHS. In Northern Ireland, we will guarantee uh, there will be no hard border and we will uphold the Belfast Agreement. And in doing so, we will continue to preserve the constitutional and economic integrity of the United Kingdom. We have taken this week, time this week to strengthen and clarify this part of the agreement following discussions with unionists in Northern Ireland and across the UK. The Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar and I spoke yesterday and we've both committed that there should be no barriers either north-south or east-west and I believe this agreement delivers that. So that was uh, Theresa May there. I want to know this morning, do you think she has pulled off a political triumph this week? Uh, you can call us on the programme. We'd love to hear from you. Our number is 0333 2020 We're on Twitter at Scott and Stalking. You can also uh, send an email in. My address is rob at greatesthits.co.uk. So has Theresa May found a way to satisfy politicians on both sides of the Irish border and also the Remainers and the Leavers in the Tory party? Or has she just bought herself some time? Well, Kirsty Hughes spends an awful lot of time thinking about Brexit. She's the director of the think tank, the Scottish Centre for European Relations, and she's on the line this morning. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning. How are you? 
I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Do, do, do you think about anything other than Brexit these days? Uh, oh, I, I try to. I think that's necessary for sanity. <laughs> um, I don't mind admitting that I'm still, two days after this announcement on Friday morning, confused about what all this means. Can, can you try and explain for us just where we are and, and what has been agreed and what has been sorted out and what hasn't? Yes, and I, I mean, I, I think, it, you know, some of it is confusing. This is a, a preliminary agreement and, for instance, a bit on EU citizens' rights, which obviously concerns a lot of EU citizens living in Scotland, makes a lot of references to different existing EU laws and directives. So if you want to interpret it, you've got to go away and know about what what they mean. Um, but in essence, the, the deal is 15 pages long. It covers the three main areas that the EU said they wanted to see sufficient progress on if they were to then talk about trade and transition, as you just said. And so that means there's been a, a deal done, or most of a deal done, on the rights of EU citizens in the UK and of UK citizens who currently live in other EU member states, a deal on money and debts and obligations, and uh, a set of commitments, I would call it, on the Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland border. But, but in none of these three areas is this the final text because it, there's small things to be worked out um, to, to go into the much longer agreement that, that the government's aiming to see by next autumn. I, I found that I found it difficult to get my head around how it's actually sort of squared the circle of, on the one hand, keeping everybody happy in Northern Ireland and the Republic to make sure that trade completely flows there, uh, while also... Uh, if, if we if this agreement says that uh, this is going to apply to the whole of the UK, so the whole of the UK is, is going to try and follow the sort of trade rules, how do you square that with with keeping all the the hardline levers happy? Um, but because that sort of leaves things pretty much as they are, doesn't it? And and that's not what they wanted. Well, I don't think it leaves things exactly as they are, and I, and I think what's in this this fifteen pages on the Northern Ireland Republic border doesn't add up, and so I think in that sense there are some very serious circles to be squared, and so it, it's kicking the can down the road a bit because the document doesn't only say, as you say, that it will definitely keep the the Irish border open, but also there won't be a border in the Irish Sea. There'll be full alignment of, of rules between Northern Ireland and, and, and the Irish Republic if if there isn't a trade deal that does it in some some other other way. But the document also states, again, what Theresa May has said for over a year now, that the UK will leave the single market and customs union. And so it's very hard to see how that can come together into an agreement because the EU 27 says if we're leaving the single market and customs union, we can't have completely open border with the rest of the EU. And if there's going to be a hard border at Dover and all the other uh, UK ports to, to the EU 26, then how do you keep them open with Ireland and across across the RSC. So in a sense, I think, you know, hardline Brexiteers can read one thing into it and other people have been saying, oh, this means we're definitely going for a soft Brexit. And I think it doesn't. A soft Brexit might be less damaging economically, but this, this means there's going to be a much bigger argument over this in a couple of months' time when they do get on to talking about trade. Has this solved any of the internal disputes within the Tory party? Because they all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet in, in public. But um, as you say, it, it seems like such a fudge that I can't believe that everybody is going to be happy with this. They are. It's interesting, isn't it, the extent to which they, the, the Tories that seem to be singing from the, the same hymn sheet bar one or two backbenchers. So, so it, it shows they do have the, the, the ability... Um, to speak as one when we've just seen this fractious public rowing over what's happening for the last last several months. Um, I think, you know, on, on the money issue, the hardline Brexiteers have mostly accepted this. They, they want Brexit to happen. If, if they have to pay, they'd rather not pay. Wouldn't anybody rather not pay if they can get away with it? But, but they've accepted that. On EU citizens' rights, um, you'll find hardline Brexiteers who say, why are we still going to refer cases to the European Court of Justice for eight years? But the big one is the future trade agreement. And, of course, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, actually said the other day that the Cabinet has still not had a full discussion of that at the full Cabinet level, which is, is absolutely extraordinary, given that the government's been demanding since last summer that the EU move on and talk about trade. And that's where you're going to see a lot of debate about do we have to be 
similar or the same in regulations? Do we be Singapore? Do we go for a bonfire of the regulations? And that's a row to come in the UK, within the UK. But then when the UK finally goes to Brussels and says, this is what we want, I think the EU are probably going to say, well, we're not offering you that. Um, and anyway, that doesn't add up in terms of the Irish border. And then the UK side will say, no, 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 that's your fault. The Irish border won't stay open. So don't expect we're not going to see a much bigger row even over border trade deal and all that. You mentioned regulations, and that's that's something that's puzzled me for a while. Just, just imagine for the moment that I was running a company where I'm making a, a widget or something, and you know, I, I, I sell I sell all around the world, but I, I sell particularly into the European Union. You 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 see on all these kind of products and, and things that we buy, there's a little sort of sticker on them that just has the letters CE, but but that basically means that it, it meets all the rules that have been set down for the EU for products. Now, even after Brexit, no matter what kind of trade deal we have, surely anything we want to sell to the rest of Europe is still going to have to meet all these rules, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So, so that's just normal for trade trade around the world. No, no country has has to let products in if they don't meet its standards. But the problem is that doesn't then, you know, even if UK companies do that, that doesn't necessarily keep the borders open as they are today because we won't be part of the EU's trade policies. So, if we strike a, a trade deal with China or Japan or the US, and we have different tariffs and different. Um, deals on regulation, then at the UK-EU border, that will need checking that 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 sort of say Chinese exports aren't getting in through a back door into the EU. And and this happens even between Norway and Sweden. They're both in the single market, but Norway isn't in the EU. It's got its own trade policy. And that puts barriers in the way. And if you're trying to do just-in-time car production or just-in-time aerospace production, which is what they do, they move products around Europe and parts around Europe at great speed, that is going to be a problem. Um, and that's also then again going to be a problem at the Ireland, Northern Ireland border. Yeah, but we hear, we quite often hear people you know, complaining about you know, the regulations and directives that come out of Brussels and uh, businesses talking about the time they have to spend sort of checking through to see where they comply with all this. Mm. We, we'll still have to comply with all that if, if we actually want to, to sell to them, won't we? Oh, yes. And, the, the, well, the, the challenge is if we then want for do, domestic goods to have different regulations, then that might help some small firms who don't export to the European Union. But those larger companies that do will then potentially have to meet two sets of regulations and they'd have to do one lot of production for the EU market and one lot of production for the domestic market. And that's where you lose uh, what economists like to call economies of scale, um, you know, because you've suddenly got to do things in two different ways. Okay. Well, um, I'm very interested in, in uh, to, to hear what the, the listeners have, have got to think about this uh, this morning, and particularly this week, as, as well as the uh, the events in, in Brussels. There was something very interesting happened in in, in the Commons because uh, the there's a committee of uh, MPs who are sort of looking at what the impact of Brexit might be, and the the Brexit Secretary David Davis uh, appeared before them. It's probably worth hearing this again. This is this is David Davis being questioned by by Labour's Hilary Benn. Just to be clear, has the government undertaken any? impact assessments on the implications of leaving the EU for different sectors of the... Not in sectors. I think the, nothing, there's, there's, no, there's no sort of systematic uh, uh, impact assessment. So the, the answer to the question no. is no. Yeah. So the government hasn't undertaken any impact assessments yeah. on the implications for leaving, of leaving the EU for different sectors of the British economy. Hmm. Um, so there isn't one, for example, on the automotive <coughs> sector. On the automotive no, sector? No, not I'm aware of, no. Is there one on aerospace? Not I'm aware of, no. no. One on financial services? Well, I think the answer's going to be no to all of them. No to all of them, <laughs> right. <laughs> now, doesn't it strike you, Secretary of State, as rather strange, given experience around the committee in which you have, the government undertakes impact assessments on all sorts of things all of the time, mm. that on the most fundamental change, you've just told us that the government hasn't undertaken any impact assessments at all when these sectoral analyses were initiated, they were done to understand the effect of various options, what the outcome will be. You don't need to do an impact assessment, a formal impact assessment, to understand that if there is a regulatory hurdle between our producers and a market, that they will have an impact, it will have a, an effect. Um, the assessment of that effect, I think I've said to you before, is not as straightforward as people imagine. I'm not a, I'm not a 
fan of economic models because they have all proven wrong. Individual sectoral analyses will not be necessarily informative on that. They're informative in terms of who's vulnerable, but the actual impact assessment, as you term it, um, uh, was, uh, is not necessary piece by piece. So what do you make of that, Kirsty? Is, is he right? Is there absolutely no point you know, trying to gaze into the crystal ball and predict the future because any prediction you make will turn out to be wrong? No, no, I think this is absolutely extraordinary statement, isn't it? When when you hear it again, it's 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 still amazing, and especially since some months back, he he said there was excruciating detail ab- about the effects Brexit was going to have. Um, none of us can predict the future, um, but but we have to try and see what is most likely to happen. And as as David Davis himself just said in that clip, he he said, you know, there are different scenarios, there are different things that could happen. Um, And some of the UK's top economists and economic institutes have said, okay, if we're going to have a free trade deal like Canada, for instance, let's compare UK and its trade with Europe today to how Canada trades with Europe. And and then let's see what happens if the UK had a deal like Canada. Now, it's not going to be exact, but the figures they come out with are stunning. They say there's going to be a 60% fall in services trade, UK, EU, third or more falling goods trade, UK, EU. Now, if they're out by a bit, it's still an order of magnitude. And if you look at cars or aerospace, you've had those companies come to Westminster, gone to select committees and said, we are extremely worried. You know, if if the customs borders slow down even by a few minutes, it's extremely costly for us. So this is about investment. It's about jobs. It's about economic growth. And David Davis seems to be just throwing his hands up and saying, nope, can't really tell you anything about this. It's all going to be such a big change. Okay, last question. See if you can give me um, uh, a a short answer on this one. Do you still think it's going to happen? I think it's likely to happen. I would say there's a 10 to 20% chance in the end it might not. Okay, well, that's... uh... That's, uh, that's very uh, helpful. Thank you, Kirsty, so much for taking the time to, to talk to us this morning. That's uh, Kirsty Hughes from the Scottish Centre for European Relations. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on Brexit after all that has happened this week. Our number 0333-2020-401. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. A bit of reaction to uh, our talk with Kirsty Hughes on Brexit coming in on uh, Twitter. Uh, Jonathan says the whole Brexit deal is being done by the powers that be to stop the UK and anyone else, like the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland, for example, from leaving the EU. That's what Jonathan thinks. And Michael Munro, in answer to the question, are we any clearer with what's going to happen? He says, yes, we are. Thanks to the Conservatives' great negotiation skills, we are hashtag remaining and on even less favourable terms. Genius. Uh, a little bit of uh, cynicism there, perhaps, from Michael, but uh, thanks very much. We, uh, we love uh, hearing what you think on the programme. Uh, if you want to call 0333-2020-401. Uh, going to turn our attention now to uh, diabetes. It is one of Scotland's biggest health issues. There's around a quarter of a million people in Scotland who have the type 2 condition. Now, that's the, the type that's linked uh, to lifestyle and diet. You know, in short... You have too much sugar, and uh, it's uh, very preventable, really. Just uh, it's it's up to how we live our lives. So, are you one of those quarter of a million? And how far would you go to be cured of it? This is our question this morning. Would you give up solid food? Would you live on a liquid diet? for months on end, just to be free of it. Because there was a study which was funded by the charity Diabetes UK came out last week, and it says if you do that, you can chase away diabetes, you'll get your body working as it should do again, and you'll have absolutely no need to be on any medication. Well, Isabel Murray from Largs has joined us. She's uh, one of the people who took part in the trial. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so tell us about this trial and, and, and why you took part in it, because it's made a huge difference to your life, hasn't it? Absolutely, yes. I... Um had a heart attack in 2011, and six months later I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Um, and completely shocked by that because I'd always lived quite um, ha- happily with healthy foods and so on. I, I didn't um, eat badly at all. I did have some weight on, obviously, at 15 stone, but that was partly due to the fact that I was getting more ill every day before the heart attack struck, although I didn't realise it. Mm-hmm. 
So um, that was me on the spiral of uh, diabetes, medication, more medication, weight gain, more medication. So um, it became a really, really difficult thing. I was very, very frustrated by the fact that I couldn't control this. Yeah. I mean, how, how does it affect... I mean, you talked about lots of medication, but how, how does it affect your life? Because this isn't the kind where you have to monitor your blood sugar and inject yourself with insulin, is it? Type that's two. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's just tablet medication. Um, but some of the medication naturally increases your weight. So with increased weight, you have to have increased medication. So there's constantly this spiral. Mm-hmm. So you, you went on this trial... What exactly was involved? And I, I, I talked there in the introduction, talking about a, you know, going on a liquid diet. It, it, was that basically it? I mean, was, was it as, as simple as that? Well, the study I was on was a, a two-year study. And at the outset, we had no idea exactly what the results might be, obviously. But the hope was that you would at least get some control over your type 2 diabetes. But yes, it was a liquid diet. 200 calorie drinks, four of them a day, no solid food. The normal is about 12 to 13 weeks of doing that and then introduce solid food again. I did 17 weeks because my spell spanned Christmas and New Year. So I did 17 weeks of um, liquid diet. At Christmas? At Christmas you were doing this? Yes. How, how, How did that Christmas go? I mean, that's, <laughs> well, that sounds absurd. Um, <laughs> my first grandchild was born just born just before it, so um, I, I still carried on doing it. Um, but on Christmas Day, I had a chocolate one. Oof! You <laughs> broke the rules. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a wide idea. Well, you are allowed to. I mean, did you have a huge guilt complex after that? Did you, did you spend weeks thinking, "Oh my goodness, I had a no. chocolate"? No? No, 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 not really. No, I knew that I, I could. I could do one day. Yeah, but but I'm I'm fascinated by how you might have managed that because I, I see you know friends and colleagues that may, maybe do these these sort of milkshake kind of diets for a bit and they just want to lose a couple of pounds. But but you know, four months. I, I think I think I read that you you even went and ate, if that's the right word. You're shaking in a different room from the rest of the family. Yes, yes. I couldn't. I mean, to sit at the table and watch someone eat something that you really like, and you can't eat it. Is, is just making it more difficult for yourself. So it's a lot easier to just sit in a separate room. I, I had the, the television. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been a, a massive temptation just to, to quit. I mean, you, you must have yeah. sat there one day and sort of looked at this milkshake and thought, I just can't face this. Oh, it's, it's difficult, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's different flavours. And I used to add a spoonful of coffee to the chocolate one. <laughs> so that it would taste slightly different, a bit like a mocha. Right. And uh, soup ones, you can add dried herbs and spices and things like that to change the flavour slightly. But it's not easy. Absolutely not. It's very, very difficult. But mm-hmm. when you see the weight fall off as quickly as it does, it's a great incentive to keep going. Yeah, the thing is, everyone, I think, who's, who's ever tried dieting knows that you know the, the dieting bit is is perhaps in, to an extent the, the easy bit. It, it's what happens yeah. afterwards. It's, it's keeping it off, isn't it? How, how have you found that? Well, I, I agree with you. I think that's quite difficult, really. But um, when you've lost that kind of weight, you have to keep fit and, get, and exercise. Um, and I continued to watch what I was eating for the whole two years of the study. So I, I ate about 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day. And found I was actually probably going below that at some points because I was used to less food. But um, one of the dietitians advised me to keep a diary. And by doing that and weighing everything, I knew exactly what I'd had in the day and kept it up enough um, to be comfortable. But um, I found that mostly it's exercise as well as diet. Um, And now that I'm in remission... Um, I'm not dieting at all. I don't weigh anything. don't count calories. But I am careful still about what I eat. But what I have found is how important the exercise is. 
because over this last year I've had some minor um, health issues that are not related at all to the diabetes. Um, and dealing with those and the limited mobility that I've had three times in the last year set me back a bit and I put some weight on during that time, even though I wasn't overeating. But then to get back to the routine of diet and exercise has brought me back round again and I've got it to do again um, just now. But I know I can do it now. Is this the most, the next few weeks coming up, is, is this the most challenging time of the year? I imagine it must be. I mean, I, I suppose if you've lived through a Christmas just drinking a, drinking a, a, a shake, you can, you can cope with denying yourself a little bit over the, yes, over the holidays. Yes, absolutely. I think if you understand that if you do it for one day, like Christmas Day, then you have to go back to normal again the following day and not follow on um, getting into the habit of eating too much and too rich a food. Because the question I'm, I'm putting out there for everybody this morning is is whether whether this is an answer for everybody. Because we, we had the charity Diabetes UK, as I say, mm. that they this week they're saying, you know, this is a total breakthrough. This discovery that you know we can completely cure this condition. But it, it got me wondering whether this is a, a realistic answer. That's why I was so keen to to talk to you just to to discover you know exactly what's involved. Do you think this can be scaled up? You know, could could, could lots of other people? It yes. exist for months on end just on a liquid diet like you did? Is it, is it realistic? Yes, I do. I mean, if I can do it at 62 and feeling really ill at the time, um, if I can do that, anybody can do it. And uh, to be honest, if that's your choice is to take a liquid diet for two or three months, take that two or three months out of your life and get your life back. It must have taken an awful lot of I am will and determination to do that. Mm-hmm. People may yes, be listen- people have been listening and wondering if you're that de- if, if this Isabel is that determined. Why did she get into a situation with type two diabetes in the first place? Well, that's difficult to to answer. Really, I think probably the answer is that when you're when you're getting type two diabetes, you don't feel well. You know, there's there's no symptoms that you can say, oh, I've got a pain, I'm, uh, I need to, I'm going to have to go to the doctor and get a pill. Well, Isabel, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, giving up part of your Sunday mornings. Absolutely fascinating to to hear your story. And I just can't get rid of that idea of, of, of spending Christmas Day sitting there when everybody else has, <laughs> has got the party hats on and, and there you are with your shake. <laughs> well, so, you know, it was... It, it was a no-brainer for me. I had to get out of this cycle. Yeah. And um, I knew that the medication wasn't working for me. Okay. So, And it doesn't for most people. And I knew that this was a better way to do it and actually get your life back and okay. be free. OK, well, thank, thank you for sharing your story, Isabel. I hope you, you have a, uh, a lovely Christmas um, eating things other, other than milkshakes. <laughs> and and so I'd like, to, I'd like everyone to, to tell me, could, could you do that? Could, could if, if you... You said the quarter of a million people living with type 2 diabetes in Scotland. Could you do what Isabel did? The number's 0333 This is Scotland's Talking. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. I'm Rob sitting in for Ali this week on uh, Scotland's Talking, two hours of music and conversation. So far, the conversation this morning, been talking about uh, everything that happened with Brexit this week, about uh, Theresa May and uh, what a roller coaster week she had. She, she thought she had uh, a deal on the, the question of the Irish border and then she didn't. Then she did a flit in the middle of the night to Brussels to announce, ta-da, we've done it, we've done it, we've, we've got an agreement. But uh, we were listening to uh, Kirsty Hughes from the Scottish Centre for European Relations who suggests that, uh, well, maybe uh, everything isn't quite as uh, clear-cut as we thought. There's still an awful lot that's not been decided. Big questions about trade. She even thought there was about a 20% chance that the Brexit wouldn't even happen. We teased that out of her. So uh, what, what do you think? What are you feeling about Brexit? It is the, the biggest thing going on by a mile at, at the moment. Um, how is it affecting you? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, 0333 And uh, a fascinating call just before the break there from uh, Isabel from Largs, who lived for four months on a liquid diet so that she could cure herself of type 2 diabetes. She lost about uh, four stone. I mean, this was the diet to end all diets. Uh, she was just existing on, on four shakes a day. But the point is, she did it for four months 
all through Christmas, all through New Year, sitting there just with your, your wee milkshake while everyone's tucking into the, the turkey and the Christmas pudding and uh, you know, enjoying the, the drink and, and being merry. She allowed herself just one solitary chocolate. That was her Christmas blowout. But a massive problem, quarter of a million people live with type 2 diabetes. Tell me, do you think you could do that? If, if, you, if you have type 2, if your doctor's always nagging you, you need to diet, need to lose some weight, need to cut down on the sugar, could you go as far as Isabel? She says it's completely changed her life and she's never going back there again. Could you do what Isabel did? So get your calls in 033-2020-401. So I'm Rob sitting in for Ali on Scotland's Talking. In the second hour of the programme, want to uh, hear what you think about Christmas economising. Do you feel under pressure to, to spend at, at Christmas? Do you think Christmas has been been hijacked by all the consumerism? And what do you do just to, to shave a few pennies here and there? Going to um, hear uh, some very interesting tips on what you can do to cut back. But I wonder whether some of them are a bit too extreme. For example, would you buy Christmas presents in a second-hand shop? And would you ditch the wrapping paper and just use an old magazine to wrap them up instead? Is that going to pass muster... Uh, with your family well we'll we'll hear some tips from zero waste scotland and also um there was a lot of disappointment wasn't there in paisley on uh, thursday night when they didn't win uk city of culture there was disappointment for dundee a few years ago Uh, i'm asking you is there any point in bidding for things like this paisley has won part of this process by the simple fact of all the energy and the goodwill that's been generated and it's onwards and upwards from this point well, that was the Renfrewshire Council leader, his uh, reaction. He's uh, being very defiant. He says Paisley has one out of this. So we'll be talking to the lady who ran the bid in the next hour. This is Scotland's Talking. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. So uh, we're going to start off uh, this hour talking about uh, what happened on uh, Thursday night. The the hopes of a nation, or at least perhaps one part of it, dashed. It wasn't a a sporting failure this time, uh, but the uh, the buddies in Paisley took it uh, as hard as the Tartan Army do because the town was beaten in its bid to be named UK City of Culture 2021. That honour has gone to Coventry. Uh, Of course, this follows on from Dundee being pipped by Hull for the honour of having it this year. Perth, of course, was going for it and uh, dropped out of the running earlier this year. Uh, Now, it was reckoned that uh, if they'd won the title, it could have boosted Paisley's economy by £176 million and it could have sustained nearly 5,000 jobs. That's quite a prize. But do you think it's worth us bidding for these things? Because, you know, we never seem to win. You know, is it worth all the, the efforts that's gone into this? The council's been working on this, well, for years. I mean, the bid was launched officially two years ago, but um, massive amount of work gone into this. We're always, we were hearing on the show last week about how cash-strapped uh, our local councils are. Was it all a, a waste of time? Let's ask Jean Cameron. She was the, the bid director of Paisley 2021. Jean, are you, are you sitting here this morning thinking, oh, my goodness, that was two years of my life, I'm never going to get back? Oh, it's two years of my life. That's just incredible. Um, and Paisley is stronger for the, for this. Absolutely, we were in this to win it from day one. Um, there can only be one winner on the night, so it's in our hands to create a win-win situation for Paisley. We're mm-hmm. all Team Paisley now, <laughs> and together the town and all its partners will still great, yeah. achieve great things. So take take us back to to Thursday night, Jean. You, you were you were in Hull, weren't you? Um, what what was it like? I mean, was it was it a crushing disappointment? <laughs> um, absolutely, we were gutted, totally gutted. I was there with some great five of us from Paisley, representing a town of seventy six thousand. Um, loud and proud music charity, the the Star Project, a young woman from Pace, and Morgan Spence, the young artist that did the Lego film. And yes, we were gutted, but our hearts were still swelling with. Um, about how far our town has come in this competition and we're grateful for the opportunity of the competition because it allows us to tell the world about what makes Paisley great. Have you got any idea you know, why it was that Coventry won it rather than Paisley? Because you know, it was, you know, it's very easy for us. We, we, we've been absorbed in the bid for a couple of years and we've, we've followed it and we've been right behind you, but, uh, you know, uh, we, don't, we haven't been paying too much attention to what they were doing elsewhere. Have you, have you got any idea what it was that, that swung the difference? Why was it they went for Coventry? Well, all the bids were uh, 
it's a competitive situation, so it was a secret what was in their bid. So I was concentrating on Paisley's bid, and I look forward to seeing what comes out in terms of Coventry's bid and, you know, wish wish them well. We've been in touch already to, to do that. The competition goes to the, the place that needs it most, we, we, we think. But we've had feedback from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport that Paisley has an excellent bid. And we'll take um, further notice of feedback after Thursday's result and use the learning of that to, to build on a, a future. Paisley's united in a vision that culture and heritage um, are at the heart of revitalising our town. And this was this is one aspect of a 10-year plan. So we're m moving forward with the learning and a, and a great profile and awareness raising for our town. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in just a moment and, and, and what you've got out of it and where we're going for the future. Um, but uh, we did have a word in Hull on uh, on Thursday night with the the chairman of the the judges, uh, who uh, was well known. He's the he's Phil Redmond, the creator of uh, Brookside and uh, Grange Hill on the telly. He was talking to uh, our reporter Tom Dambach. So uh, let's have a listen to to him talking to Tom and, and see whether we can get some clues for, for for why it was they didn't go for Paisley. It's just a really hard, tough decision, you know. And, and the more you're making me think about it, the more now I'm feeling really bad about not, you know, <laughs> whatever. But yeah, I said to each of the city at the end of each of their presentations, the only thing I really regret is that there's only can only be one winner, you know. So that's it. Again, it was another impressive bid from Paisley. You said it was a really tough decision to make this time round. It was, and uh, Paisley put a, a, a really great sort of cultural program together, you know. And again, there was a, a great commitment to a part and things like that um, but you know again it's just coming down to that thing where would the biggest impact that we do that this award would actually you know make, make it whether it's transformation within a city where you know uh, or whether it was an impact across the UK Was it uh, hard listening to that Jean? What I take away from that is that Paisley has a great cultural programme and we will be building on that with our events programme from 2018 forward and the Culture, Heritage and Events Fund that we have that allows our local talent to show off what they do well. And it was great to hear Phil talk about the strengths of Paisley's partnership. That we, you know, together with partners from across Scotland and local partners in the town, from business, from the academic partners and our community partners, as well as our cultural partners, Paisley will go on and weave a new pattern. Yeah, I want to talk about about the positives because you say you're, you're being you're being very uh, upbeat after after that. You're saying you know it's, it's onwards and upwards. So so what has the town got out of this bid? Well, in terms of our, our reputation, um, I think people see that towns matter, and Paisley's been really happy to fly that flag that culture matters to towns up and down the UK across Scotland. And we've been a flag bearer for that. We're telling a new story to ourselves. And, you know, Paisley buddies now believe in Paisley again. After years of our self-confidence taking blows, um, uh, there's, there's been 1.3 million economic impact alone in 2017 from our events programme. That's, that's about money that would be spent in Paisley rather than anywhere else. And we've built our visitors profile by 25% um, in the last year. And what do you say to, to, to cynics who, who, who have, have the question, just as the one I posed in the introduction, of, of whether this is all just too much of a distraction at the time when, when councils are under pressure, that we, should, we shouldn't be taking the time and money to, to, to do this? What, what do you say to them? Well, culture has really positive benefits in terms of social the social well-being in terms of reducing isolation, um, giving people a chance to be playing a part actively in, in, in their town, as well as skills development and, and the jobs that can come from culture. You, you know those statistics I've just given you in terms of economic impact? That was culture um, that brought that into a town. So it's been culture that has brought every sector and everybody in our town together, from the business communities through to the artists. And, you know, yesterday I was in Fergusley Park. I walked through the door, a whole group of young people saying, 
our journey continues and we were launching the Tannehill Thread, the next um, festival for, for Paisley, Paisley's newest kid on the block, that actually this is giving sense, people a sense of pride again and we will build on that platform to create a, a better future for everybody that lives and works and plays in our town. Well, Jean, it's been lovely to talk to you this morning. Thanks uh, for taking the time to uh, to uh, tell us uh, uh, what the the plans are for Paisley for the future. And uh, again, sorry uh, that it was uh, it was not the result you were looking for on uh, Thursday night. Uh, as I said, it has been. We've had this experience uh, elsewhere across Scotland. Your Perth was uh, in the running for this for, for quite a long time. Uh, Dundee, going back, you know, uh, quite a few years ago, they were. Uh, up head to head against uh, Hull, and I, at the time I remember thinking that it's, it's got to go to Dundee, definitely going to go to Dundee, but they didn't get it. Instead, it's Hull that's City of Culture this year. But but even so, you, you see all the massive change that's going on in Dundee. The new hotel springing up, the the, the, the VNA coming to life. Perhaps we don't need these titles uh, anyway, or, or maybe maybe if you if you bid for these things, other things follow through it. Maybe it's maybe it's about the taking part, not the winning. But your your thoughts on on city of culture bids, whether they're uh, a waste of time, whether they're worth doing, love to hear them. Oh triple three twenty twenty four oh one. Let's uh, reflect on the call we had with uh, Jean on Paisley twenty twenty one. Though Bob's in Paisley. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Um, how do you feel after Thursday? Were you one of the people who was uh, in floods of tears when you didn't get it? Oh, no, not at all. Actually, uh, I was quite, you know, the money I've spent on the, to try and get the city of culture. But the point I'm making is that we have a, an SNP, Mary Black is our MP. I think the D also has an SNP uh, MP. So what's the point in us becoming, they want to break away from the United Kingdom, not join the United Kingdom. So I don't see the point in them even applying for it, you know, in that respect. Right, I, I see. Okay, you, you're looking at it quite quite politically there, but uh, I mean, it just take well, it's take. Wasn't it really? You know what I mean? Yeah, leaving leaving. It's an interesting point you raised, but leaving the politics to one side. Gene said that this had made people believe in Paisley again. As a buddy, did did you feel uplifted by it over the next two years? Uh, last two years? No, I did not. No, I, I think I've turned been run down for a simple reason. That, uh, they opened up. It's, it's happening in many towns around Scotland. They're opening up all these uh, like Silverburn, Brayhead, and the shopping centre and the city centre. And you, anyone from any city, like a Falkirk, anywhere, will tell you that all the local shops are closing down. And also, we're getting those charity shops, bookmakers, and uh, fast food. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean pa Paisley's Paisley's high street so, struggles have been been well documented, haven't they? But it wasn't it, it wasn't uh, UK city of shopping. It was UK city of culture. This is about all the arty farty yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I understand that. Yes, I understand that. But I don't see the point that you, you know, I mean, really, I think it was just a pure waste of uh, public money, you know, for the bid. Uh huh. You know, they paid £1,000 on what was £50,000 to change the name of the stadium, you know, to the 2021 stadium or something it's called, which is quite ridiculous, really. Yeah, but that, that, that's still putting money back into the community, though, because St Mirren do an awful lot with the community. So, I mean, that's that's just keeping the money within Paisley, surely. Yeah, I'm actually someone supporting myself, you know, but I mean, as I say, I just think that possibly that's why they don't get the vote, because, uh, you know, these cities that are putting in for the city of culture, um, they make them a little bit of political uh, thing about it, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, I... Because they're all voting SNP, so, I mean, they're saying we want to break away from the United Kingdom, but at the same time, you know, we want it both ways. We want to... Get away from the United Kingdom, but we want to become one of the United Kingdom's city of culture. So I don't see the point in that, really, you know, to be quite honest with you. It's, it's, I mean, it's got me thinking about the, the row there was a couple of weeks ago, but the fact that Dundee was going for the European title, and, and then somebody in Europe says, hold on, hold on, this, this whole Brexit thing, you, you can't bid for that. So well, it's... It seems, well, I'm sure the, the Europeans told us, no, we, we can't vote for it because we're, you know, we're yeah. breaking away. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to say, I, I did wonder... Um, on, on Thursday night, and I had a little a little sportsman bet with um, uh, the the other guys in, in the team here, and they said, "Who do you think is going to win tonight?" And I said, "Look, it's it's going to be Stoke or Coventry," because I, I said, I said "There's no there's no way they're going to give this to Scotland." You know, I said, "I think I think Paisley's got a fabulous bid," but I said, "I just I I've, I've just got I have nothing to go on other than just my own prejudice." Yeah. But I just said, "I think I, I just my feeling in my water was they're not going to give this to Scotland." I thought that myself, to be perfectly honest here. I mean, it's, um, you know, as I say, it's all down to, you know, the size of the city, Coventry's and all the rest of it. You know, they're kind of run down as well, these cities, you know. But, um, see, I think at the end of the day, it could be possibly because, you know, that these, I think Dundee's got an SNP guy at Parliament as well, you know, and I think Perth had won it at the time when they lost it. 
Mm-hmm. What's something you do? I don't know. You're normally putting that out. You know? Yeah, it's 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 a theory, Bob. Um, but it was. I mean, I, I said in the introduction that uh, that they reckoned that if if we'd won, it had boosted the economy by 176 million pounds. That was a prize worth going for, though, wasn't it? Definitely, yeah. But, um, where does that come from? Then? Can you tell me where, how they come to that figure? I, I, I suspect it's things like you know visitor spend and people coming in and all the events. And I, I, I don't know how they calculate it, but there's people who are cleverer than me that that, that reckon they can work out these things. But you, you, you still think it was a waste of time, even though there was that huge economic prize? Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of money spent in pays in the recent years. You know, and even though I've worked in service myself, actually, but I mean, a lot of money spent in in the last few years, Stevenson Park, for instance, you know, has been transformed and everything. You know, there's a lot of money being spent. You know, so really, you know, I think there's other things to think about rather than wanting to be a city of culture. You know, okay. Um, you know, honestly, you know, I really do. But thanks for having my call. Anyway, not at all. Thanks, thanks, thanks for calling in, Bob. Um, we're going to turn our attention to to Christmas shopping in uh, just a few moments. Uh, our number is o triple three twenty twenty four zero one. What do you do to, to to cut the cost of your Christmas? Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. And there's a few of your texts that have been coming in I'd like to read out uh, just now. If uh, you want to text us, uh, of course, uh, love to hear you on, on the phone on the programme, uh, 0333 2020 But if you prefer to text, uh, text show followed by your message to 61054. Uh, talking about uh, the Paisley 2021 bid, uh, John has texted, he says... If Paisley had won, I assume they'd had to carry on with their plans and visions at some expense to themselves, so maybe the Dundee example could be used. It'd be a waste to allow all the money and effort just to come to nothing. That's what John says. And uh, we've got some reaction to uh, the diabetes story that we were talking about in the last hour. This was uh, Isabel from Largs, who lived uh, on just shakes for four months to, to shed about four stone doing that all over Christmas and all over New Year. Liz says, I think a liquid diet is a bit on the harsh side. The best way would be to cut out the sugar in our diet, but we need protein and veg as part of our daily intake to keep us healthy. So the best way forward is to cut down portion size and also cut out sugar. Well, well, thanks for calling in with that, Liz. I think the whole thing that um, came out of this diabetes study was, was that maybe you know, we've had this diet message and you know, cut down on sugar and eat, and eat the veg and take the exercise. They've been banging on about this for years. But the thing that really seemed to make the difference was when you did something radical. When you, when you hand somebody uh, a, you know, a big box of, of shake powder and say, look, just live on this. And maybe that's something that, that people can somehow grasp. It's maybe too hard, you know, too, too many temptations to just change your diet in little ways. Maybe the only way is to be totally radical. And, and maybe if the doctor, you know, hands you a box and you just live on that and you just follow that. Maybe that is the way to do it. It doesn't, doesn't involve quite so much willpower, maybe. But uh, thank you for your thoughts, Liz. You can keep those coming in. Uh, give us a call on the programme, 0333 202401. I'm going to talk about um, Christmas shopping just now because uh, you probably don't want to be reminded. But uh, two weeks' time, it will be Christmas Eve. And uh, I don't know about you, but all I hear are people just trying to outdo each other with stories about how unprepared they are. I had a nightmare yesterday. Christmas shopping still not done. My computer at home, dead. Absolutely dead. Wouldn't wouldn't wake up. What am I going to do? I'm going to have to go into an actual shop. Can't believe it. You know, I haven't done that for years. <laughs> All my Christmas shopping done online. What am, what am I going to do? Uh, but uh, do you feel there's a lot of pressure? Has, has Christmas become too retail orientated you know is it, is it should be more about spending time with the family and, and socializing do you even feel this kind of just like a pressure to be happy at christmas do you, do you think it's been taken over by the food and uh, the drink companies you know does it make you stop and think when you when you see an articulated lorry handing out free cans of, of fizzy drink and, and it causes gridlock because it did that in, in glasgow a, a few weeks ago well there is a, a campaign to scale down our celebrations just a little bit. It's from Zero Waste Scotland, and they've sent out a list of uh, 10 things you can do to have a, a waste-free Christmas. Um, so let's talk to uh, Andrew Pankhurst, who's the Reuse Campaigns Manager at Zero Waste Scotland. Good morning, Andrew. Morning. Good morning. Do, do you save the planet with your Christmas? Well, I try to. Um, that's the thing about Christmas. I think it's just it's become quite a lot about buying stuff, and I think, um, yeah, you can end up with a house full and not really know how to manage it. So... Yeah, that's, that's kind of the basis of some of our tips. It's not really about not scaling back Christmas. It's just about how to deal with all the, the extra stuff that there is to deal with, all the paper and card and leftover food and those kind of things. 
and how to put all that stuff to the best use. Yeah, I mean, so, so you've got you, you you've got on these list of ten things, sort of tips for what you can do for you know recycling, you say, and re- reusing things and stuff like that. But but fundamentally, you want us to buy less stuff, don't you? Because you're talking about sort of giving experiences, or, or or I think on this list of ten things, you know, make somebody some chutney. You suggest you know, you, you 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 want to make it a different type of Christmas. It's not all about sort of you know huge glittery boxes under the tree. I mean, that's great, and I'm not saying don't do that, but one of the things that we find in January every year, some statistics came, about, came out about this a few years ago, the amount of, like, box, you know, full presents not touched to end up in landfill or, like, donated to charity en masse in January is massive, and I think this is one of these things we feel so pressurised to buy stuff for other people that we just panic and just get them something, and it's maybe not, you know, we don't have any idea if they're actually going to like it. So one of the ways that we suggest to people that you can avoid you know, giving something to someone that they may not actually want at all is to give an experience because that's not really something that you can waste. So if you buy someone restaurant vouchers, if you buy them some cinema tickets, you know, these are the things that it's a pretty safe bet that people are going to enjoy. You could go all out. There's all kinds of experience gift vouchers you can get now for helicopter rides and all kinds of fancy things. But actually, just even keeping it simple, restaurant voucher, gig tickets, or even just, you know, actually going back to the trusty old vouchers. You know, I think we feel like it's, we've put no thought into it if we've got someone vouchers. But I would say don't feel bad about vouchers because then the person gets to choose and they're going to get something that they really want. Yeah. Um, the, I wonder what if you've got any views about where to shop as, as well. Because as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've had a bit of a disaster yesterday because my computer died and I'm trying to, I've been doing most of my shopping online. But what I have noticed when, when I think about it is, all these things are arriving. The amount of cardboard and packaging that all these things are arriving, would you be telling us that we should actually be going out and going into an actual shop and that that's a better way of doing your Christmas shopping? Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely can be. It certainly saves you ending up with mountains of cardboard. One of the, we've got like, tips around loads of stuff, but one of the stuff that we talk about is food. Um, and actually, just talking about that, actually visiting... Uh, things like your local butchers and bakers and that kind of thing where you're getting all your stuff in for Christmas can be a really good option because, one, you can choose exactly how much you want and they're quite good at helping you portion as well uh, in the butchers. So they're quite good at giving you a bit of advice, which you definitely don't get in the supermarket. You're kind of forced to buy just great big packs of stuff. Um, but also, you can, uh, you know, quite often if you visit one of these kind of independent or local butchers, you don't end up with, like, masses of styrofoam or, like, plastic packaging either. It's usually just wrapped in, like greaseproof paper or something like that or you could take your own Tupperware in it's a really good way to cut down on getting just masses of packaging and also making sure you get the exact amount of food that you really need because food waste is such a huge issue all the year round in Scotland but actually at Christmas um, this sort of ramps up a bit because actually it's a season of feasting which is fab but it does tend to lead to lots of kind of wasted food so we've got loads of tips about how to uh, combat food waste on our uh, lovefoodhatewaste.com website as well. OK, stay with us just for a moment, Andrew, because I've, I've got John uh, on the other line. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Now, it, it, it says on my screen here that Christmas is a waste of money, says John. Bar humbug. What, what, you, you, are, you are screwed, hello, are you? Hello? Hello? Well, what it is, Christmas to me, it's just the one there, but it's for small children who believe in Santa Claus. And it's the days when I was at I'm 84, but we used to hang up a little tiny stocking and get very little in it at all. And that was it. But today, commercialisation has taken over and it's all about spend, 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 until the day comes when you've got to pay for this spending. And children today get far too much. I mean, they forget that actually this day, Christmas, it's a, it's a day where I'm a religious man. And this is a day when Jesus Christ was born, not Santa Claus, which appeared with a red cloak on. OK? Yeah, did you have grandchildren, John? Oh, I've got loads of little nieces and nephews and things like that. Right. I mean, do, do you not feel that you, you want to spoil them just a little bit and, and see their wee faces when they get exactly what they've been, been dreaming of and hankering <laughs> after? Well, that's, that's correct. I mean, the small children which believe in this... And believe it, there's a man in the red cloak that comes down the chimney like we did. He does. Yes. But he does. The adults, the adults, the adults who jump on the bandwagon and want this and want that. And we spend so much on adults rather than the children. And everywhere you go, it's, it's money by Christmas. 
And there's too much commercialised and too much money to be spent. And at the end of the day, when we spend the money and we realise that we spent too much and we're in serious debt, which is high today, there's a lot of debt in today, and we wake up with a headache. I mean, it's for the small ones, the little ones we believe in. Yeah, now, can I call this some, some ground rules for this conversation here? We're going to leave Santa right out of it. Um, Andrew, I'm going to pop back to you for, for, for a second here. Obviously, you know, um, John doesn't like to see waste and he doesn't like to see commercialisation. There was, there was a couple of your list of 10 things that, that really brought me up um, quite short. The suggestion that we should buy gifts in second-hand shops and the, don't bother with the wrapping paper, use old magazines. You've gone too far with that. I don't know. We, one of the things we do in my household, but like, uh, my wife's really good at this, is actually saving last year's wrapping paper. So I think last <laughs> year we managed to do about 90% of our presents in wrapping paper that we just saved from Christmas morning. Like, as long as it hadn't been too obliterated by our son, if you had like a decent piece of it left, we just folded it up and put it in a wee, one of those gift bags and stored it in the cupboard throughout the year and got it all back out again the year after and used it again. I myself that I'd done that. We didn't use old magazines, although... Um, but know, that's, that what, that's one of your ten tips. I think that tip was, like, if someone's into fashion, why not wrap it in an old sheet of Vogue magazine or something like that? Because you're being thoughtful and you're thinking about them. I mean, I think... Thoughtful, if I tried that, I, th- I think my wife would throw that back in my face. <laughs> It'd mean, be a brave I man I to do that. Is, like, a lot of these kind of home, more homemade types of things are a nice way of showing people that you've put a bit more effort and thought and time into what you've done for them for Christmas um, rather than just spent money kind of quickly and unthinkingly. So I'm not judging anybody that does, you know, like buy new wrapping paper. That's great. But actually, if you make your own or you make your own presents for people, I think it's kind of nice. It's just kind of showing a bit more thought and certainly buying stuff secondhand. You know, when Christmas is like supposed to be the season of giving and goodwill, well, actually, if you're getting someone a secondhand present, you're not only um, getting something nice for them, but you're supporting a charity and you're also doing your bit for the planet because it's avoiding buying something new and all the kind of energy and resources that that uses. So I think that's kind of a cool tip for Christmas, just to kind of think outside the box. We did a study last year, like a YouGov survey, to see whether or not people were open to receiving secondhand presents. Um, and I was quite surprised that it came out as high as it did. It was four out of five people said that they'd be perfectly happy to receive one. So, do you know what I mean? I think we just think there's a stigma there about buying secondhand, which it just kind of isn't really. Well, Andrew, I, I salute your organisation because uh, I tell you what happened in my house. Even if somebody opened their presents carefully enough that you could fold up the wrapping paper and put it away again to use it next year, by the time December's gone, gone around again, I'll have forgotten where I put it. I know, I know that for a fact. And one day I'll just come across a, an area of the house where there'll just be this huge stack of, of wrapping paper. I'm not, I'm not sure I've solved the planet's uh, waste problems. But thanks uh, for talking to us this morning, Andrew, and, and thanks uh, to John for your thoughts as well. Uh, we're going to come back in just a few minutes and uh, we'll have any other business. And now on Scotland's Talking, time for any other business. So the last section of the show uh, will uh, take your calls on anything you want to get off your chest, anything that's uh, been bugging you and you think deserves uh, a wider audience. Uh, but uh, we've still got some um, the uh, feedback coming in on uh, Christmas and Paisley as well. So uh, let's uh, have a, a text uh, first that's come in. I haven't got a name on this, uh, but it says, uh, Hi, Rob. I'm lucky I don't have too many folk to worry about, but all the same, Christmas is about giving. It's not about what's being spent. That's my opinion from uh, somebody who has uh, texted in and not given uh, their name. But uh, if you want to text our number, text SHOW plus your message to 61054. We've uh, had some response on uh, Twitter as well. We're on uh, Scotland's Talking. And uh, this is uh, on the subject of uh, Paisley 2021. And uh, Karen says uh, whether it's been a waste of time. Absolutely not. She says Paisley has been reborn because of this bid. Only someone who doesn't really know Paisley and hasn't seen all the changes since the bid process began would say it's uh, a waste of time. Well, uh, I do know Paisley. And you know, Karen, I think you're possibly onto something because I think the reason Paisley didn't get it is because there's been too much change in Paisley recently. I think, again, just my hunch... I think the judges think that Paisley doesn't need this big prize because it's going to change itself and uh, the the regeneration process cannot be stopped and it doesn't need to be UK City of uh, of Culture for that process to happen. Uh, David uh, has called in as well. uh, And your thoughts about City of Culture as well, David? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. What what do you think about it? Well, I feel that this City of Culture, I just feel it's all nonsense. 
because the amount of money that they put in to try to get it, it's like doing the lottery. You know, people put loads of money into the lottery, but they never win. <laughs> That's true. And even if you do win the city of culture, who actually benefits from it? Is it the health service? No. Is it the police? No. Fire service? No. Prison service? No. Military? No. Is it the people that are looking for work? No. The only ones that benefit is those that have businesses in that area. Yeah, but businesses uh, employ people and, and people get jobs. People might you know, work in hotels yeah. or in a cafe that gets uh, an uptake in business. I mean, that's, that's how you start to get this, this economic yeah. feedback, isn't it? Well, if you take Biden Kilmarnock, and in Kilmarnock, there's certain supermarkets do not pay rates because they're supposed to employ people from within the area. But yet the majority of the people they employ are out with the area. So I mean, you, you, you're, you're, so you're it's really, yeah, you're quite you know, cynical about it. I, 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 yeah. I, yeah. No, I just feel that the money they've used to get these things going would mm-hmm. be better well spent in our health service, and our police service, and and other services, uh, especially for disadvantaged children. Yeah, but um, look at the places that that have got it already. Obviously, there have been you know, a huge uplift in interest in Hull this year. And I can can hear from your your accent there, David, that uh, you're from across the water. I mean, the, yep. the first place that got City of Culture w- was Derry. I mean, w- was that not transformative in, in terms of changing the perception of Derry? Uh, it was and it wasn't. <laughs> it's, and everyone, when it comes to Stroke City, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you look at Birmingham, the bull ring, when they built that, they said it was going to do this, going to do that, going to bring loads of business in. It turned out to be one of the biggest white elephants ever. And I mean, how many millions was spent on that? Yeah, but what they've done instead in Birmingham now, they've got this huge blingy railway station right in the middle that uh, that everybody loves, you know. So, I mean, maybe regeneration can be good. Um, but thank you for, for, for calling in with with your thoughts on, on Paisley 21. Appreciate that. Yep. Uh, we've got a text in from Kyle, who uh, is talking about uh, Christmas. And, uh, oh, goodness me. Yes, Kyle says, Christmas is all about presents now. Every family is in a different financial situation. He says, Santa should get each child something that isn't too expensive and parents should be buying the expensive presents for their children if that's what they want to do and can afford. He says the way that Santa treats every child is first. When kids go back to school, they're all equal. Christmas should be about the family and time together, not how much or how expensive the presents you get were. So there you go. Kyle, who's uh, texted in from uh, Aberdeen this morning. Kyle wants a... Uh, to scale down Christmas, he wants it to, to be more about the just the the giving and the love, and, and not about the the value of the presents. If uh, if you have any thoughts about what you're doing with your Christmas, I really liked um, to to get some reaction to some of what uh, Andrew was saying from Zero Waste Scotland, particularly this uh, this idea of uh, you know saving the the wrapping paper. Yeah, nice idea, but I, I get the impression that uh, I bet Andrew's one of these people who goes out in January, so it hits the sales. And buy loads of loads of presents when they're really cheap, and uh, and puts them all away, and and that's what someone gets uh, next year. But uh, you, w- would you rip up a mag- magazine? Would you dare to present somebody that you love uh, a present on on the twenty fifth wrapped up in an old magazine? Uh, let me know what you think. The numbers oh triple three twenty twenty four oh one. Lockett's in Edinburgh. Good morning. Morning, all right, pal. I'm, I'm fine, thank you. you. I just. I agree with what you're saying, but uh, is like they folk uh, saying Christmas is Christmas, huh? Uh-huh. And I like, say, what, uh, how much money you spend is mainly like, uh, you know, if you go uh, a couple of <coughs> don't you spend a lot of beer on your wood, huh? Uh-huh. You didn't spoil them that much, Ken, but. Bairns like uh, Christmas, Kim, what I mean, Sam? Oh, they certainly do, I know. My, you know, my, mine are, you know, they're, they're off the scale with, with their excitement. Um, it's busy on the calls just now, so I'm going to go to Marion uh, as well, who's in uh, Bowness. Good morning, Marion. Good morning. Good morning. What... Right. I'm actually going to say that I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a skin flint. Oh, I'm, I'm with you there, absolutely. Let's, uh, well, let's hear I it for the skin flints. Well, I've been to my own shows every <laughs> year. Now, in the big 
bingo, the mini bingo, you can pick, get a pick of the sc- stalls. Uh-huh. But you see, I don't take the pick of the stalls. I get vouchers. Asda, Argos, and Marks and Spencers. So come Christmas time, I get vouchers out to all my friends and all my relations for their Christmas. Uh-huh. And maybe just some out to some charities, give them out to the bikers' charities and what have you. But... Uh, my Christmas cards, well, I, I always get my Christmas cards on Boxing Day. <laughs> and I put them away with my Christmas, you know, my Christmas decorations. Uh-huh. And I've just got them all out and signed them all, and I only paid a third of the price for my Christmas cards. <laughs> but the thing is... I would have paid if I'd been buying them now. Oh, that, that's, that, that's fabulous. I love that, Marion. But the thing is, how do you remember where you've put them? Well, I put them away with my decorations. Oh, I see. My decorations goes away in the same... Well, you see, I decorate the whole house out at the front. So I've got, I've got a big cupboard which I put all my decorations in. Uh-huh. And my cards goes in there too. So, right. So you, you, you've got one of these sort of lit-up houses. Your, your house is Blackpool in yes, Bowness, yes, is it? Yes, yeah. I'm afraid if you're on your own to Bowness, you can't miss it. <laughs> you see, you're not Scrooge at all. You love, you love Christmas. You've just got a keen sense of economy. Well, as I say, normally I get, I can actually, and by the time the shows are there from the July, uh, June till the leave in August, I could make about a thousand pound in vouchers. <laughs> Did you give this to your family as well? Oh, hi, all my family got a hundred pound. So the, there's no element of surprise here, is there? Everybody knows what's coming. Well, no, they're getting a hundred pound of vouchers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tell, tell you what, you've got some luck at the bingo. Well, I, I love the bingo and I can go over every day. <laughs> 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 Marion, it's a fabulous call to end the programme. Thanks so much for, for calling in. You've, uh, you've really cheered me up with that. <laughs> and uh, if I can just leave everybody with one... Um, I, I know we've, we've not gone through Christmas yet, but um, it's, a, it's a chance for me to give you my, my one super Christmas tip that you will thank me for in, in years to come. See when you come to take down your lights and you take down your fairy lights in the Christmas tree and you know how they get tangled to, you know, and you know, spend ages trying to untangle them afterwards and you get them out the next year. Get a piece of cardboard or an old cereal box... Wrap them around that, and you'll have absolutely no bother in 12 months' time. As I say, remember that tip. Rob told you that, uh, and you will thank me next December. So th- thank you to everybody who's, who's called in. It's been uh, fun chatting to you uh, all this morning. Ali's back uh, with uh, Scotland's talking next Sunday at 10.